I'm sure Supreme Grand Master will be along directly, he said. Let's not spoil it all now, eh, lads? Arranging that fight with the dragon and everything, getting it all off right, that was something, wasn't it? We've been through a lot, right? It's worth waiting just a bit longer, okay? The circle of robed and cowled figures shuffled in grudging agreement. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Certainly. Okay, if you say so. It began to creep over Brother Watchtower that something wasn't right, but he couldn't quite put a name to it. Um, he said, Brothers? They too shifted uneasily. Something in the room was setting their teeth on edge. There was an atmosphere. Brothers, repeated Brother Watchtower, trying to reassert himself, we are all here, aren't we? There was a worried chorus of agreement. Of course we are. What's the matter? Yes. 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 There it was again. A subtle wrongness about things that you couldn't quite put your finger on because your finger was too scared. But Brother Watchtower's troublesome thoughts were interrupted by a scrabbling sound on the roof. A few nubs of plaster dropped into the circle. Brothers, repeated Brother Watchtower nervously. Now there was one of those silent sounds, a long buzzing silence of extreme concentration and just possibly the indrawing of breath into lungs the size of haystacks. The last rats of Brother Watchtower's self-confidence fled the sinking ship of courage. Brother Doorkeeper, if you could just unbolt the dread portal, he quavered. And then there was light. There was no pain, there was no time. Death strips away many things, especially when it arrives at a temperature hot enough to vaporise iron, and among them are your illusions. The immortal remains of Brother Watchtower watched the dragon flap away into the fog and then looked down at the congealing puddle of stone, metal and miscellaneous trace elements that was all that remained of the secret headquarters. And of its occupants, he realised, in the dispassionate way that is part of being dead. You go through your whole life and end up a smear swirling around like cream in a coffee cup. Whatever the gods' games were, they played them in a damn mysterious way. He looked up at the hooded figure beside him. We never intended this, he said weakly. Honestly, no offence. We just wanted what was due to us. A skeletal hand patted him on the shoulder, not unkindly, and Death said, Congratulations! Apart from the Supreme Grand Master, the only elucidated brother to be away at the time of the dragon was Brother Fingers. He'd been sent out for some pizzas. Brother Fingers was always the one sent out for takeaway food. It was cheaper. He'd never bothered to master the art of paying for things. When the guards rolled up just behind Errol, Brother Fingers was standing with a stack of cardboard boxes in his hand and his mouth open. Where the dread portal should have been was a warm, melted patch of assorted substances. Oh, my God! Goodness, said Lady Ramkin. Vimes slid down from the coach and tapped Brother Fingers on the shoulder. Excuse me, sir, he said. Did you by any chance see what... When Brother Fingers turned towards him, his face was the face of a man who has hang-glided over the entrance to hell. He kept opening and shutting his mouth, but no words were coming out. Vimes tried again. The sheer terror frozen in Brother Fingers' expression was getting to him. "'If you would be so kind as to accompany me to the yard,' said Vimes, "'I have reason to believe that you—' "'He hesitated. 
He wasn't entirely certain what it was that he had reason to believe. But the man was clearly guilty. You could just tell by looking at him. Not perhaps guilty of anything specific, just guilty in general terms. Mm-hmm, said Brother Fingers. Sergeant Colon gently lifted the lid of the top box. What do you make of it, Sergeant? said Vimes, stepping back. Er, uh, it looks like a clatchy and hot with anchovies, sir, said Sergeant Colon, knowledgeably. I mean the man, said Vimes wearily. Mm, said Brother Fingers. Colon peered under the hood. Oh, I know him, sir, he said. Benji Lightfoot Bargus, sir. He's a Capodamonte in the Thieves' Guild. I know him of old, sir. Sly little bugger. Used to work at the university. What? As a wizard, said Vimes. Odd job, man, sir. Gardening and carpentry and that. Oh, did he? Can't we do something for the poor man, said Lady Ramkin. Nobby saluted smartly. I could kick him in the bollocks for you if you like, my lady. <laughs> said Brother Fingers, beginning to shake uncontrollably, while Lady Ramkin smiled the iron-hard blank smile of a high-born lady who is determined not to show that she has understood what has just been said to her. Put him in the coach, you two, said Vimes, if it's all right with you, Lady Ramkin. Sipple, corrected Lady Ramkin. Vimes blushed and plunged on. It might be a good idea to get him indoors, charge him with the theft of one book to wit, the summoning of dragons. Right you are, sir, said Sergeant Colon. The pitchers are getting cold too. You know how the cheese goes all manky when it gets cold? And no kicking him either, Vimes warned. Not even where it doesn't show. Carrot, you come with me. <laughs> Brother Fingers volunteered. And take Errol, added Vimes. He's driving himself mad here, game little devil. I'll give him that. Marvellous when you come to think about it, said Colon. Errol was trotting up and down in front of the ravaged building, whining. Look at him, said Vimes. Can't wait to get to grips. His gaze found itself drawn as though by wires up to the rolling clouds of fog. It's in there somewhere, he thought. What are we going to do now, sir, said Carrot, as the carriage rattled off. Not nervous, are you? said Vimes. No, sir. The way he said it jogged something in Vimes's mind. No, he said, you're not, are you? I suppose it's being brought up by the dwarfs that did it. You've got no imagination. I'm sure I try to do my best, sir, said Carrot firmly. Still sending all your pay home to your mother? Yes, sir. You're a good boy. Yes, sir. So what are we going to do, Captain Vimes? Carrot repeated. Vimes looked around him. He walked a few aimless, exasperated steps. He spread his arms wide and then flopped them down by his sides. How should I know, he said. Warn people, I guess. We'd better get over to the patrician's palace and then... There were footsteps in the fog. Vimes stiffened, put his finger to his lips and pulled Carrot into the shelter of a doorway. A figure loomed out of the billows. Another one of them, thought Vimes. Well, there's no law about wearing long black robes and deep cowls. There could be dozens of perfectly innocent reasons why this person is wearing a long black robes and a deep cowl and standing in front of a melted-down house at dawn. Perhaps I should ask him to name just one. He stepped out. Excuse me, sir, he began. The cowl swung round. There was a hiss of indrawn breath. I just wonder if you would mind... After him, Lance Constable! 
The figure had a good start. It scuttled along the street and had reached the corner before Vimes was halfway there. He skidded around it in time to see a shape vanish down an alley. Vimes realised he was running alone. He panted to a halt and looked back, just in time to see Carrot jog gently around the corner. "'What's wrong?' he wheezed. "'Sergeant Colon said I wasn't to run,' said Carrot. Vimes looked at him vaguely. Then slow comprehension dawned. "'Oh,' he said, "'I, uh, I see. I don't think he meant in every circumstance, lad.' He stared back into the fog. Not that we had much of a chance in this fog and these streets. Might have been just an innocent bystander, sir, said Carrot. What, in Ark, more pork? Yes, sir. We should have grabbed him then just for the rarity value, said Vimes. He patted Carrot on the shoulder. Come on, we'd better get along to the patrician's palace. The king's palace, corrected Carrot. What, said Vimes, his train of thought temporarily shunted. It's the king's palace now, said Carrot. Vimes squinted sideways at him. He gave a short, mirthless laugh. Yeah, that's right, he concluded. Our dragon-killing king. Well done, that man. He sighed. They're not going to like this. They didn't. None of them did. The first problem was the palace guard. Vimes had never liked them. They'd never liked him. OK, so maybe the rank were only one step away from petty scofflaws... But in Vimes's professional opinion, the palace guard these days were only one step away from being the worst criminal scum the city had ever produced. A step further down. They'd have to reform a bit before they could even be considered for inclusion in the ten most unwanted list. They were rough. They were tough. They weren't the sweepings off the gutter. They were what you still found sticking to the gutter when the gutter sweepers had given up in exhaustion. They'd been extremely well paid by the patrician, and presumably were extremely well paid by someone else now, because when Vimes walked up to the gates, a couple of them stopped lounging against the walls and straightened up while still maintaining just the right amount of psychological slouch to cause maximum offence. Captain Vimes, said Vimes, staring straight ahead, to see the king. It's of the utmost importance. Yeah, well, it'd have to be, said a guard. Captain Slimes, was it? Vimes said Vimes evenly, with a V. One of the guards nodded to his companion. Vimes, he said, with a V. Fancy, said the other guard. It's most urgent, said Vimes, maintaining a wooden expression. He tried to move forward. The first guard sidestepped neatly and pushed him sharply in the chest. No one is going nowhere, he said. Orders of the king, see, so you can push off back to your pit, Captain Vimes, with a V. It wasn't the words which made up Vimes's mind, it was the way the other man sniggered. Stand aside, he said. The guard leaned down. Who's gonna make me? He rapped on Vimes's helmet. Copper. There are times when it is a veritable pleasure to drop the bomb right away. Lance Constable Carrot, I want you to charge these men, said Vimes. Carrot saluted. Very good, sir, he said, and turned and trotted smartly back the way they had come. "'Hey!' shouted Vimes as the boy disappeared around a corner. "'That's what I like to see,' said the first guard, leaning on his spear. "'That's a young man with initiative, that young man. "'A bright lad. "'He doesn't want to stop along here and have his ears twisted off. "'That's a young man who's going to go a long way, if he's got any sense.' "'Very sensible,' said the other guard. "'He leaned the spear against the wall. "'You watchmen make me want to throw up,' he said conversationally. Poncing around all the time, never doing a proper job of work, throwing your weight about as if you counted for something. So me and Clarence are going to show you what real guarding is about. Isn't that right? 
I could just about manage one of them, Vimes thought, as he took a few steps backward, if he was facing the other way, at least. Clarence propped his spear against the gateway and spat on his hands. There was a long, terrifying ululation. Vimes was amazed to realise it wasn't coming from him. Carrot appeared around the corner at a dead run. He had a felling axe in either hand. His huge leather sandals flapped on the cobblestones as he bounded closer, accelerating all the time. And all the time there was this cry, Da, 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 like something caught in a trap at the bottom of a two-tone echo canyon. The two palace guards stood rigid with astonishment. I should duck if I was you, said Vimes from near ground level. The two axes left Carrot's hands and whirred through the air, making a noise like a brace of partridges. One of them hit the palace gate, burying half the head in the woodwork. The other one hit the shaft of the first one and split it. Then Carrot arrived. Vimes went and sat down on a nearby bench for a while and rolled himself a cigarette. Eventually he said, I think that's about enough, Constable. I think they'd like to come quietly now. Yes, sir. What are they accused of, sir? said Carrot, holding one limp body in either hand. Assaulting an officer of the watch and the execution of his duty. And, uh, oh yes, resisting arrest. Under section brackets VII of the Public Order Act of 1457, said Carrot. Yes, said Vimes solemnly. Yes, yes, I suppose so. But they didn't resist very much, sir, Carrot pointed out. Well, attempting to resist arrest. I should just leave them over by the wall until we come back. I don't expect they'll want to go anywhere. Right you are, sir. Don't hurt them, mind, said Vimes. You mustn't hurt prisoners. That's right, sir said Carrot, conscientiously. Prisoners once charged have rights, sir. It says so in the Dignity of Man, brackets Civic Rights Act of 1341. I keep telling Corporal Nobbs they have rights, I tell him. This means you do not put the boot in. Very well put, Constable. Carrot looked down. You have the right to remain silent, he said. You have the right not to injure yourself falling down the steps on the way to the cells. You have the right not to jump out of high windows. You do not have to say anything you see, but anything you do say, well, I have to take it down and it might be used in evidence. He pulled out his notebook and licked his pencil. He leaned down further. Pardon, he said. He looked up at Vimes. How do you spell groan, sir, he said. G-R-O-N-E, I think. Very good, sir. Oh, and Constable? Yes, sir. Why the axes? They were armed, sir. I got them from the blacksmith in Market Street, sir. I said you'd be along later to pay for them. And the cry, said Vimes weakly. Dwarfish war yodel, sir, said Carrot proudly. It's a good cry, said Vimes, picking his words with care. But I'd be grateful if you'd warned me first another time, all right? Certainly, sir. In writing, I think. The librarian swung on. It was slow progress because there were things he wasn't keen on meeting. Creatures evolved to fill every niche in the environment, and some of those in the dusty immensity of L space were best avoided. They were much more unusual than ordinary unusual creatures. Usually he could forewarn himself by keeping a careful eye on the kickstool crabs that grazed harmlessly on the dust. When they were spooked, it was time to hide. Several times he had to flatten himself against the shelves as a thesaurus thundered by. He waited patiently as a herd of critters crawled past, grazing on the contents of the choicer books and leaving behind them piles of small, slim volumes of literary criticism. And there were other things, things which he hurried away from and tried not to look at. And you had to avoid clichés at all costs. 
He finished the last of his peanuts atop a stepladder, which was browsing mindlessly off the high shelves. The territory definitely had a familiar feel, or at least he got the feeling that it would eventually be familiar. Time had a different meaning in L-space. There were shelves whose outline he felt he knew. The book titles, while still unreadable, held a tantalising hint of legibility. Even the musty air had a smell he thought he recognised. He shambled quickly along a side passage, turned the corner, and with only the slightest twinge of disorientation shuffled into that set of dimensions that people, because they don't know any better, think of as normal. He just felt extremely hot and his fur stood straight out from his body as temporal energy gradually discharged. He was in the dark. He extended one arm and explored the spines of the books by his side. Ah! Now he knew where he was. He was home. He was home a week ago. It was essential that he didn't leave footprints. But that wasn't a problem. He shinned up the side of the nearest bookcase and, under the starlight of the dome, hurried onwards. Lupine once glared up, red-eyed, from the heap of paperwork on his desk. No one in the city knew anything about coronations. He'd had to make it up as he went along. There should be plenty of things to wave, he knew that. Yes, he said abruptly. Um, there's a Captain Vimes to see you, said the flunky. Vimes of the watch? Yes, sir. Says it's of the utmost importance. Once looked down his list of other things that were also of the utmost importance. Crowning the king, for one thing. The high priests of fifty-three religions were all claiming the honour. It was going to be a scrum. And then there were the crown jewels. Or rather, there weren't the crown jewels. Somewhere in the preceding generations, the crown jewels had disappeared. A jeweller in the street of cunning artificers was doing the best he could in time with gilt and glass. Vimes could wait. "'Tell him to come back another day,' said once. "'Good of you to see us,' said Vimes, appearing in the doorway. Once glared at him. Uh, "'Since you're here,' he said. Vimes dropped his helmet on Once's desk in what the secretary thought was an offensive manner and sat down. Uh, "'Take a seat,' said Once. "'Have you had breakfast yet?' said Vimes. Now really, once began. Don't worry, said Vimes cheerfully. Constable Carrot will go and see what's in the kitchens. This chap will show him the way. When they had gone, once leaned across the drifts of paperwork. There had better, he said, be a very good reason for... The dragon is back, said Vimes. Once stared at him for a while. Vimes stared back. Once his senses came back from whatever corners they'd bounced into. "'You've been drinking, haven't you?' he said. "'No. The dragon is back.' "'Now look,' Once began. "'I saw it,' said Vimes flatly. "'A dragon? You're sure?' Vimes leaned across the desk. "'No, I could be bloody mistaken,' he shouted. "'It may have been something else with sodding great big claws, "'huge leathery wings and hot fiery breath. "'There must be masses of things like that.' "'We all saw it killed,' said Once. "'I don't know what we saw,' said Vimes, "'but I know what I saw.' He leaned back, shaking. He was suddenly feeling extremely tired. "'Anyway,' he said in a more normal voice, "'it's flamed a house in Bitwash Street, just like the other ones. "'Any of them get out?' Vimes put his head in his hands. He wondered how long it was since he'd last had any sleep, proper sleep, the sort with sheets. "'Or food, come to that.' Was it last night or the night before? Had he ever, come to think of it, ever slept at all in his life? It didn't seem like it. The arms of Morpheus had rolled up their sleeves and were giving the back of his brain a right pummeling, 
but bits were fighting back. Any of them get... Any of who, he said. The people in the house, of course, said once. I assume there were people in it. At night, I mean. Oh, oh, yes, it wasn't like a noble house. I think it was some sort of secret society thing, Vimes managed. Something was clicking in his mind, but he was too tired to examine it. Magic, you mean? Dunno, said Vimes. Could be. Guys in robes. He's going to tell me I've been overdoing it, he said. He'll be right, too. Look, said once kindly, people who mess around with magic and don't know how to control it, well, they can blow themselves up and... Blow themselves up? And you've had a busy few days, said once, soothingly. If I'd been knocked down and almost burned alive by a dragon, I expect I'd be seeing them all the time. Vimes stared at him with his mouth open. He couldn't think of anything to say. Whatever stretched and knotted elastic had been driving him along these last few days had gone entirely limp. "'You don't think you've been overdoing it, do you?' said once. "'Ah,' thought Vimes, "'jolly good.' He slumped forward. The librarian leaned cautiously over the top of the bookcase and unfolded an arm into the darkness. There it was. His thick fingernails grasped the spine of the book, pulled it gently from its shelf and hoisted it up. He raised the lantern carefully. No doubt about it. The summoning of dragons. Single copy, first edition, slightly foxed and extremely dragoned. He set the lamp down beside him and began to read the first page. Mmm, said Vimes, waking up. Brung you a nice cup of tea, Captain, said Sergeant Colon, and a figgin. Vimes looked at him blankly. "'You've been asleep,' said Sergeant Colon helpfully. "'You were spark out when Carrot brought you back.' Vimes looked around at the now-familiar surroundings of the yard. "'Oh,' he said. "'Me and Nobby have been doing some detectoring,' said Colon. "'You know that house that got melted? "'Well, no one lives there. "'It's just rooms that get hired out. "'So we found out who hires them. "'There's a caretaker who goes along every night "'to put the chairs away and lock up.' He wasn't half creating about it being burned down. You know what caretakers are like? He stood back, waiting for the applause. Well done, said Vimes dutifully, dunking the figgin into the tea. There's three societies use it, said Colon. He extracted his notebook. To wit, viz, the Ankh Morpork Fine Art Appreciation Society, <clears throat> the Morpork Folk Dance and Song Club, and the Elucidated Brethren of the Ebon Knight. Why, <clears throat> said Vimes. Well, you know, fine art. It's just men painting pictures of young women in the nude. They all together, explained Colon, the connoisseur. The caretaker told me some of them don't even have any paint in their brushes, you know. Shameful. There must be a million stories in the naked city, thought Vimes. So why do I always have to listen to ones like these? When do they meet, he said. Monday, 7.30, admission 10 pence, said Colon promptly. As for the folk dance people, well, no problem there. You know, you always wondered what Corporal Nobbs does on his evenings off. Colon's face split into a watermelon grin. No, said Vimes incredulously. Not Nobby. Yep, said Colon, delighted at the result. What, jumping about with bells on and waving his hanky in the air? He says it's important to preserve old folkways, said Colon. Nobby? Mr. Steel toe-caps in the groin, I was just checking the door handle and it opened all by itself. Yeah, funny old world, ain't it? He was very bashful about it. Good grief, 
said Vimes. It just goes to show you never can tell, said Colon. Anyway, the caretaker said the elucidated brethren always leave the place in a mess, scuffed chalk marks on the floor, he said, and they never put the chairs back properly or wash out the tea urn. They've been meeting a lot lately, he said. The nudie women painters had to meet somewhere else last week. What did you do with our suspect, said Vimes. Him? Oh, he'd done a runner, Captain, said the sergeant, looking embarrassed. Why? He didn't look in shape to run anywhere. Well, when we got back here, we sat him down by the fire and wrapped him up because he kept on shivering, said Sergeant Colon, as Vimes buckled his armour on. I hope you didn't eat his pizzas. Errol at him. It's the cheese, see? It goes all... Go on. Well, said Colon awkwardly, he kept on shivering sort of thing and groaning on about dragons and that. We felt sorry for him, to tell the truth. And then he jumps up and runs out the door for no reason at all. Vimes glanced at the sergeant's big, open, dishonest face. No reason, he prompted. Well, we decided to have a bite, so I sent Nobby out to the baker's sea, and, well, we thought the prisoner ought to have something to eat. Yes, said Vimes encouragingly. Well, when Nobby asked him if he wanted his figgin toasted, he just gave a scream and ran off. Just that, said Vimes. You didn't threaten him in any way? Straight up, Captain. Bit of a mystery, if you ask me. He kept going on about someone called Supreme Grand Master. Hmm. Vimes glanced out of the window. Grey fog lags the world with dim light. What time is it? he said. Five of the clock, sir. Right. Well, before it gets dark... Colon gave a cough. In the morning, sir. This is tomorrow, sir. You let me sleep all day? Didn't have the heart to wake you up, sir. No dragon activity, if that's what you're thinking. Dead quiet all round, in fact. Vimes glared at him and threw the window open. The fog rolled in in a slow, yellow-edged waterfall. We reckon it must have flown away, said Colon's voice behind him. Vimes stared up into the heavy rolling clouds. Hope it clears up for the coronation, Colon went on in a worried voice. You all right, sir? It hasn't flown away, Vimes thought. Why should it fly away? We can't hurt it, and it's got everything it wants right here. It's up there somewhere. You all right, sir? Colon repeated. It's got to be up high somewhere in the fog. There's all kinds of towers and things. What time's the coronation, Sergeant? he said. Noon, sir, and Mr. Wants has sent a message about how you're to be in your best armour among all the civic leaders, sir. Oh, has he? "'And Sergeant Hummock and the day squad'll be lining the route, sir.' "'What with?' said Vimes, vaguely watching the skies. "'Sorry, sir?' Vimes squinted upwards to get a better view of the roof. "'Hm?' he said. "'I said they'll be lining the route, sir,' said Sergeant Colon. "'It's up there, Sergeant,' said Vimes. "'I could practically smell it.' "'Yes, sir,' said Colon, obediently. "'It's deciding what to do next.' "'Yes, sir?' They're not unintelligent, you know. They just don't think like us. Yes, sir. So be damned to any lining of the route. I want you three up on the roofs, understand? Yes, sir. What? Up on the roofs, up high. When it makes its move, I want us to be the first to know. Colon tried to indicate by his expression that he didn't. Do you think that's a good idea, sir? He ventured. Vimes gave him a blank look. Yes, Sergeant, I do. It was one of mine he said coldly. Now go and see to it. 
When he was left to himself, Vimes washed and shaved in cold water and then rummaged in his campaign chest until he unearthed his ceremonial breastplate and red cloak. Well, the cloak had been red once, and still was here and there, although most of it resembled a small net used very successfully for catching moths. There was also a helmet, defiantly without plumes, from which the molecule-thick gold leaf had long ago peeled. He'd started saving up for a new cloak once. Whatever had happened to the money... There was no one in the guardroom. Errol lay in the wreckage of the fourth fruit box Nobby had scrounged for him. The rest had all been eaten, or had dissolved. In the warm silence, the everlasting rumbling of his stomach sounded especially loud. Occasionally he whimpered. Vimes scratched him vaguely behind the ears. "'What's up with you, boy?' he said. The door creaked open. Carrot came in, saw Vimes hunkered down by the ravaged box, and saluted. "'We're a bit worried about him, Captain.' He volunteered. He hasn't eaten his coal. Just lies there twitching and whining all the time. You don't think something's wrong with him, do you? Possibly, said Vimes. But having something wrong with them is quite normal for a dragon. They always get over it, one way or another. Errol gave him a mournful look and closed his eyes again. Vimes pulled his scrap of blanket over him. There was a squeak. He fished around beside the dragon's shivering body, pulled out a small rubber hippo, stared at it in surprise and then gave it one or two experimental squeezes. "'I thought it would be something for him to play with,' said Carrot, slightly shamefaced. "'You bought him a little toy?' "'Yes, sir.' "'What a kind thought.' Vimes hoped Carrot hadn't noticed the fluffy ball tucked into the back of the box. It had been quite expensive. He left the two of them and stepped into the outside world. There was even more bunting now. People were beginning to line the main streets, even though there were hours to wait.' It was still very depressing. He felt an appetite for once, one that it had take more than a drink or two to satisfy. He strolled along for breakfast at Harger's House of Ribs, the habit of years, and got another unpleasant surprise. Normally the only decoration in there was on Sham Harger's vest, and the food was good solid stuff for a cold morning, all calories and fat and protein, and maybe a vitamin crying softly because it was all alone. Now laboriously made paper streamers crisscrossed the room and he was confronted with a crayoned menu in which the words Coronation and Royal figured somewhere on every crooked line. Vimes pointed wearily at the top of the menu. What's this? he said. Hager peered at it. They were alone in the grease-walled cafe. It says, by royal appointment, Captain, he said proudly. What's it mean? Hager scratched his head with a ladle. What it means is, he said, if the king comes in here, he'll like it. Have you got anything that isn't too aristocratic for me to eat, then? said Vimes, sourly, and settled for a slice of plebeian fried bread and a proletarian steak cooked so rare you could still hear it bray. Vimes ate it at the counter. A vague scraping noise disturbed his thoughts. What are you doing? he said. Harger looked up guiltily from his work behind the counter. Nothing, Captain! he said. He tried to hide the evidence behind him when Vimes glared over the knife-chewed woodwork. Come on, Sham, you could show me. Harger's beefy hands came reluctantly into view. I was only scraping the old fat out of the pan, he mumbled. I see. And how long have we known each other, Sham? said Vimes with terrible kindness. Years, Captain, said Harger. You've been coming in here nearly every day regular, one of my best customers. Vimes leaned over the counter until his nose was level with the squashy pink thing in the middle of Harger's face. "'And in all that time, have you ever changed the fat?' he demanded. 
Harger tried to back away. Well, it's been like a friend to me, that old fat, said Vimes. There's little black bits in there I've grown to know and love. It's a meal in itself. And you've cleaned out the coffee jug, haven't you? I can tell. This is loving a canoe coffee if ever I tasted it. The other stuff had flavour. Well, I thought it was time. Why? Harger let the pan fall from his pudgy fingers. Well, I thought if the king should happen to come in... You're all mad. But, Captain... Vimes's accusing finger buried itself up to the second joint in Harger's expensive vest. You don't even know the wretched fellow's name, he shouted. Harger rallied. I do, Captain, he stuttered. Course I do. Seen it on the decorations and everything. He's called Rex Vivat. Very gently, shaking his head in despair, crying in his heart for the essential servility of mankind, Vimes let him go. In another time and place, the librarian finished reading. He'd reached the end of the text. Not the end of the book. There was plenty more book. It had been scorched beyond the point of legibility, though. Not that the last few unburned pages were very easy to read. The author's hand had been shaking, he'd been writing fast, and he'd blotted a lot. But the librarian had wrestled with many a terrifying text in some of the worst books ever bound. Words that tried to read you as you read them. Words that writhed on the page. At least these weren't words like that. These were just the words of a man frightened for his life, a man writing a dreadful warning. It was a page a little back from the burned section that drew the librarian's eye. He sat and stared at it for some time, then he stared at the darkness. It was his darkness. He was asleep out there somewhere. Somewhere out there a thief was heading for this place to steal this book. And then someone would read this book, read these words, and do it anyway. His hands itched. All he had to do was hide the book, or drop onto the thief's head and unscrew it by the ears. He stared into the darkness again. But that would be interfering with the course of history. Horrible things could happen. The librarian knew all about this sort of thing. It was part of what you had to know before you were allowed into L-space. He'd seen pictures in ancient books. Time could bifurcate, like a pair of trousers. You could end up in the wrong leg, living a life that was actually happening in the other leg talking to people who weren't in your leg, walking into walls that weren't there anymore. Life could be horrible in the wrong trouser of time. Besides, it was against library rules. The three rules of the librarians of time and space are one, silence, two, books must be returned no later than the last date shown, and three, do not interfere with the nature of causality. The assembled librarians of time and space would certainly have something to say about it if he started to tinker with causality. He closed the book carefully and tucked it back into the shelf. Then he swung gently from bookcase to bookcase until he reached the doorway. For a moment he stopped and looked down at his own sleeping body. Perhaps he wondered briefly whether to wake himself up, have a little chat, tell himself that he had friends and not to worry. If so, he must have decided against it. You could get yourself into a lot of trouble that way. Instead, he slipped out of the door and lurked in the shadows and followed the hooded thief when it came out clutching the book and waited near the dread portal in the rain until the elucidated brethren had met and when the last one left, followed him to his home and murmured to himself in anthropoid surprise and then ran back to his library and the treacherous pathways of L-space. By mid-morning, the streets were packed. Vimes had docked Nobby a day's salary for waving a flag, and an air of barbed gloom settled over the yard, like a big black cloud with occasional flashes of lightning in it. "'Get up in a high place,' muttered Nobby. "'That's all very well to say.' 
I was looking forward to lining the streets, said Colon. I'd have got a good view. You were going on about privilege and the rights of man the other night, said Nobby, accusingly. Yes, well, one of the privileges and rights of man is getting a good view, said the sergeant. That's all I'm saying. I've never seen the captain in such a filthy temper, said Nobby. I liked it better when he was on the drink. I reckon he's... You know, I think Errol is really ill, said Carrot. They turned towards the fruit basket. He's very hot, and his skin looks all shiny. What's the right temperature for a dragon, said Colon. Yeah, and how'd you take it, said Nobby. I think we ought to ask Lady Ramkin to have a look at him, said Carrot. She knows about these things. No, she'll be getting ready for the coronation. We shouldn't go disturbing her, said Colon. He stretched out his hand to Errol's quivering flanks. I used to have a dog that... Arr! That's not hot, that's boiling. I've offered him lots of water and he just won't touch it. What are you doing with that kettle, Nobby? Nobby looked innocent. Well, I thought we might as well make a cup of tea before we go out. It's a shame to waste... Take it off him! Noon came. The fog didn't lift, but it did thin a bit to allow a pale yellow haze where the sun should have been. Although the passage of years had turned the post of captain of the watch into something rather shabby, it still meant that Vimes was entitled to a seat at official occasions. The pecking order had moved it, though, so that now he was in the lowest tier on the rickety bleachers between master of the Fellowship of Beggars and head of the Teachers' Guild. He didn't mind that. Anything was better than the top row, among the assassins, thieves, merchants, and all the other things that had floated to the top of society. He never knew what to talk about. Anyway, the teacher was restful company, since he didn't do much but clench and unclench his hands occasionally and whimper. Something wrong with your neck, Captain, said the chief beggar politely as they waited for the coaches. What? said Vimes distractedly. You keep on staring upwards, said the beggar. Hmm? Oh no, nothing wrong, said Vimes. The beggar wrapped his velvet cloak around him. You couldn't buy any chance spare, he paused, calculating a sum in accordance with his station. About three hundred dollars for twelfth course civic banquet, could you? No. Fair enough, fair enough, said the chief beggar amiably. He sighed. It wasn't a rewarding job, being chief beggar. It was the differentials that did for you. Low-grade beggars made a reasonable enough living on pennies, but people tended to look the other way when you asked them for a sixteen-bedroom mansion for the night. Vimes resumed his study of the sky. Up on the dais, the high priest of blind Eo, who last night by dint of elaborate ecumenical argument and eventually by a club with nails in it, had won the right to crown the king, fussed over his preparations. By the small portable sacrificial altar, a tethered billy goat was peacefully chewing the cud and possibly thinking, in goat, what a lucky billy goat I am to be given such a good view of the proceedings. This is going to be something to tell the kids. Vimes scanned the diffused outlines of the nearest buildings. A distant cheering suggested that the ceremonial procession was on its way. There was a scuffle of activity around the dais as Lupine once chivied a scramble of servants who rolled a purple carpet down the steps. Across the square, among the ranks of Ankh Morpork's faded aristocracy, Lady Ramkin's face tilted upwards. Around the throne, which had been hastily created out of wood and gold foil, a number of lesser priests, some of them with slight head wounds, shuffled into position. Vimes shifted in his seat, aware of the sound of his own heartbeat, and glared at the haze over the river, and saw the wings. Dear mother and father, 
wrote Carrot in between staring dutifully into the fog. Well, the town is on fate for the coronation, which is more complicated than at home, and now I am on day duty as well. This is a shame, because I was going to watch the coronation with Reet, but it does not do to complain. I must go now, because we are expecting a dragon any minute, although it does not exist really. Your loving son, Carrot. P.S. Have you seen anything of Minty lately? You idiot! Sorry, said Vimes. Sorry. People were climbing back into their seats, many of them giving him furious looks. Once was white with fury. How could you have been so stupid? he raged. Vimes stared at his own fingers. I thought I saw... he began. It was a raven. You know what ravens are? There must be hundreds of them in the city. In the fog, you see, the size wasn't so easy to... Vimes mumbled. And poor Master Greetling, you ought to have known what loud noises do to him. The head of the teacher's guild had to be led away by some kind people. Shouting out like that, once went on. Look, I said I'm sorry. It was an honest mistake. I've had to hold up the procession and everything. Vimes said nothing. He could feel hundreds of amused or unsympathetic eyes on him. Well, he muttered, I'd better be getting back to the yard. Once his eyes narrowed. No, he snapped, but you can go home if you like, or anywhere your fancy takes you. Give me your badge. Hey? Once held out his hand. Your badge, he repeated. My badge? That's what I said. I want to keep you out of trouble. Vimes looked at him in astonishment. But it's my badge. And you're going to give it to me, said Once grimly, by order of the king. What you mean? He doesn't even know, Vimes heard the wailing in his own voice. Once scowled. But he will, he said, and I don't expect he'll even bother to appoint a successor. Vimes slowly unclipped the verdigris disc of copper, weighed it in his hand, and then tossed it to Once without a word. For a moment he considered pleading, but something rebelled. He turned and stalked off through the crowd. So that was it, as simple as that. After half a lifetime of service, no more city watch. <laughs> Vimes kicked at the pavement. It'd be some sort of royal guard now, with plumes in their damned helmets. Well, he'd had enough. It wasn't a proper life anyway, in the watch. You didn't meet people in the best of circumstances. There must be hundreds of other things he could do, and if he thought for long enough, he could probably remember what some of them were. Pseudopolis Yard was off the route of the procession, and as he stumbled into the watch house, he could hear the distant cheering beyond the rooftops. Across the city, the temple gongs were being sounded. Now they are ringing the gongs, thought Vimes, but soon they will... they will... they will not be ringing the gongs. Not much of an aphorism, he thought, but he could work on it. He had the time now. Vimes noticed the mess. Errol had started eating again. He'd eaten most of the table, the grate, the coal scuttle, several lamps and the squeaky rubber hippo. Now he lay in his box again, skin twitching, whimpering in his sleep. A right mess you've made, said Vimes enigmatically. Still, at least he wouldn't have to tidy it up. He opened his desk drawer. Someone had eaten into that too. All that was left was a few shards of glass. Sergeant Colon hauled himself onto the parapet around the Temple of Small Gods. He was too old for this sort of thing. He'd joined for the bell ringing, not sitting around on high places waiting for dragons to find him. He got his breath back and peered through the fog. Anyone human still up here? he whispered. 
Carrot's voice sounded dead and featureless in the dull air. Here I am, Sergeant, he said. I was just checking if you were still here, said Colon. I'm still here, Sergeant, said Carrot obediently. Colon joined him. Just checking you were not et, he said, trying to grin. I haven't been et, said Carrot. Oh, said Colon. Good, then. He tapped his fingers on the damp stonework, feeling he ought to make his position absolutely clear. Just checking, he repeated. Part of my duty, see? Going around sort of thing. It's not that I'm frightened of being up on the roofs myself, you understand. Thick up here, isn't it? Yes, Sergeant. Everything all okay? Nobby's muffled voice sidled its way through the thick air, quickly followed by its owner. Yes, Corporal, said Carrot. What are you doing up here? Colon demanded. I was just coming up to check Lance Constable Carrot was all right, said Nobby innocently. What were you doing, Sergeant? We're all all right, said Carrot, beaming. That's good, isn't it? The two NCOs shifted uneasily and avoided looking at one another. It seemed like a long way back to their posts across the damp, cloudy and, above all, exposed rooftops. Colon made an executive decision. Sud this, he said, and found a piece of fallen statutory to sit on. Nobby leaned on the parapet and winkled a damp dog-end from the unspeakable ashtray behind his ear. "'Heard the procession go by,' he observed. Colon filled his pipe and struck a match on the stone beside him. "'If that dragon's alive,' he said, blowing out a plume of smoke and turning a small patch of fog into smog, "'then it'll have got the hell away from here, I'm telling you. "'Not the right sort of place for dragons, a city,' he added, "'in the tones of someone doing a great job of convincing himself.' It'll have gone after somewhere where there's high places and plenty to eat. You mark my words. Somewhere like the city, you mean? said Carrot. Shut up, said the other two in unison. Chuck us the matches, Sergeant, said Nobby. Colon tossed the bundle of evil yellow-headed lucifers across the leads. Nobby struck one, which was immediately blown out. Shreds of fog drifted past him. Wind's getting up, he observed. Good. Can't stand this fog, said Colon. What was I saying? You were saying the dragon will be miles away, prompted Nobby. Oh, right. Well, it stands to reason, doesn't it? I mean, I wouldn't hang around here if I could fly away. If I could fly, I wouldn't be sitting on a roof on some manky old statue. If I could fly... What statue? said Nobby, cigarette halfway to his mouth. This one, said Colon, thumping the stone. And don't try and give me the willies, Nobby. You know there's hundreds of mouldy old statues up on small guards? No, I don't, said Nobby. What I do know is they were all taken down last month when they re-leaded the roof. There's just the roof and dome and that's it. You have to take notice of little things like that, he said, when you're detectoring. In the damp silence that followed, Sergeant Colon looked down at the stone he was sitting on. It had a taper and a scaly pattern and a sort of indefinable tail-like quality. Then he followed its length up and into the rapidly thinning fog. On the dome of small gods, the dragon raised its head, yawned, and unfolded its wings. The unfolding wasn't a simple operation. It seemed to go on for some time as the complex biological machinery of ribs and pleats slid apart. Then, with wings outstretched, the dragon yawned, took a few steps to the edge of the roof, and launched itself into the air, after a while, a hand appeared over the edge of the parapet. It flailed around for a moment until it got a decent grip. Then there was a grunt. Carrot hauled himself back onto the roof and pulled the other two up behind him. They lay flat out on the leads, panting. 
Carrot observed the way that the dragon's talons had scored deep grooves in the metal. You couldn't help noticing things like that. Hadn't, he panted, hadn't we better warn people? Colon dragged himself forward until he could look across the city. I don't think we need bother, he said. I think they'll soon find out. The high priest of Blind Eo was stumbling over his words. There had never been an official coronation service in Ankh-Morpork, as far as he could find out. The old kings had managed quite well with something along the lines of We hath got the crowny faith, and we will kill any horse son who tries to take it away by the Lord Harry. Apart from anything else, this was rather short. He'd spent a long time drafting something longer and more in keeping with the spirit of the times, and was having some trouble remembering it. He was also being put off by the goat, which was watching him with loyal interest. "'Get on with it!' once hissed from his position behind the throne. "'All in good time,' the high priest hissed back. "'This is a coronation, I'll have you know. You might try to show a little respect.' "'Of course I'm showing respect. Now get on!' There was a shout off to the right. Once glared into the crowd. It's that lambkin woman, he said. What's she up to? People around her were chattering excitedly now. Fingers pointed all the same way, like a small fallen forest. There were one or two screams, and then the crowd moved like a tide. Once looked along the wide street of small gods. It wasn't a raven out there, not this time. The dragon flew slowly, only a few feet above the ground, wings sculling gracefully through the air. The flags that crisscrossed the street were caught up and snapped like so much cobweb, piling up on the creature's spine plates and flapping back along the length of its tail. It flew with head and neck fully extended, as if the great body was being towed like a barge. The people on the street yelled and fought one another for the safety of doorways. It paid them no attention. It should have come roaring, but the only sounds were the creaking of wings and the snapping of banners. It should have come roaring, not like this, not slowly and deliberately, giving terror time to mature. It should have come threatening, not promising. It should have come roaring, not flying gently to the accompaniment of the zip and zing of merry bunting. Vimes pulled open the other drawer of his desk and glared at the paperwork, such as there was of it. There wasn't really much in there that he could call his own. A scrap of sugar bag reminded him that he now owed the tea kitty sixpence. Odd. He wasn't angry yet. He would be later on, of course. By evening he'd be furious, drunk and furious, but not yet, not yet. It hadn't really sunk in, and he knew he was just going through the motions as a preventative against thinking. Errol stirred sluggishly in his box, raised his head and whined. "'What's the matter, boy?' said Vimes, reaching down. "'Upset stomach?' The little dragon's skin was moving as though heavy industry was being carried on inside. Nothing in Diseases of the Dragon said anything about this. From the swollen stomach came sounds like a distant and complicated war in an earthquake zone. That surely wasn't right. Sybil Ramkin said you had to pay great attention to a dragon's diet, since even a minor stomach upset would decorate the walls and ceiling with pathetic bits of scaly skin. But in the past few days... Well, there had been cold pizzas, and the ash from Nobby's horrible dog ends, and all in all Errol had eaten more or less what he liked, which was just about everything, to judge by the room not to mention the contents of the bottom drawer. "'We really haven't looked after you very well, have we?' said Vimes. "'Treated you like a dog, really.' He wondered what effect squeaky rubber hippos had on the digestion. Vimes became slowly aware that the distant cheering had turned to screams. 
He stared vaguely at Errol, and then smiled an incredibly evil smile, and stood up. There were sounds of panic, and the mob on the run. He placed his battered helmet on his head and gave it a jaunty tap. Then, humming a mad little tune, he sauntered out of the building. Errol remained quite still for a while, and then, with extreme difficulty, half-crawled and half-rolled out of his box. Strange messages were coming from the massive part of his brain that controlled his digestive system. It was demanding certain things that he couldn't put a name to. Fortunately, it was able to describe them in minute detail to the complex receptors in his enormous nostrils. They flared, subjecting the air of the room to an intimate examination. His head turned, triangulating. He pulled himself across the floor and began to eat, with every sign of enjoyment, Carrot's tin of armour polish. People streamed past Vimes as he strolled up the street of small gods. Smoke rose into the air from the plaza of broken moons. The dragon squatted in the middle of it, on what remained of the coronation dais. It had a self-satisfied expression. There was no sign of the throne or of its occupant, although it was possible that complicated forensic examination of the small pile of charcoal in the wrecked and smouldering woodwork might offer some clue. Vimes caught hold of an ornamental fountain to steady himself as the crowd stampeded by. Every street out of the plaza was packed with struggling bodies. Not noisy ones, Vimes noticed. People weren't just wasting their breath with screaming anymore. There was just this solid, deadly determination to be somewhere else. The dragon spread its wings and flapped them luxuriously. The people at the rear of the crowd took this as a signal to climb up the backs of people in front of them and run for safety from head to head. Within a few seconds, the square was empty of all save the stupid and the terminally bewildered. Even the badly trampled were making a spirited crawl for the nearest exit. Vimes looked around him. There seemed to be a lot of fallen flags, some of which were being eaten by an elderly goat which couldn't believe its luck. He could distantly see cut-me-own-throat on his hands and knees trying to restore the contents of his tray. By Vimes's side, a small child waved a flag hesitantly and shouted, Hurrah! And then everything went quiet. Vimes bent down. I think you should be going home, he said. The child squinted up at him. Are you a watchman? it said. No, said Vimes. And yes. What happened to the king, watchman? Er... Uh, I think he's gone off for a rest, said Vimes. My auntie said I shouldn't talk to watchmen, said the child. Do you think it might be a good idea to go home and tell her how obedient you've been then, said Vimes. My auntie said if I was naughty she'd put me on the roof and call the dragon, said the child conversationally. My auntie said it eats you all up starting with the legs so you can see what's happening. Why don't you go home? And tell your auntie she's acting in the best traditions of Ankh-Mor pork child rearing, said Vimes. Go on, run along. It crunches up all your bones, said the child happily, and when it gets to your head, it... Look, it's up there, shouted Vimes. The great big dragon that crunches you up. Now, go home. The child looked up at the thing perched on the crippled dais. I haven't seen it crunch anyone yet, it complained. Push off or you'll feel the back of me end, said Vimes. This seemed to fit the bill. The child nodded understandingly. Right. Can I shout hurrah again? If you like, said Vimes. Hurrah! So much for community policing, Vimes thought. He peered out from behind the fountain again. A voice immediately above him rumbled, Say what you like, I still swear it's a magnificent specimen. Vimes's gaze travelled upwards until it crested the edge of the fountain's top bowl. 
Have you noticed, said Sybil Ramkin, hauling herself upright by a piece of eroded statuary and dropping down in front of him, how every time we meet, a dragon turns up. She gave him an arch smile. It's a bit like having your own tune or something. It's just sitting there, said Vimes hurriedly, just looking around as if it's waiting for something to happen. The dragon blinked with Jurassic patience. The roads of the square were packed with people. That's the Ankh-Morpork instinct, Vimes thought. Run away and then stop to see if anything interesting is going to happen to other people. There was a movement in the wreckage near the dragon's front talon, and the high priest of blind Eo staggered to his feet, dust and splinters cascading from his robes. He was still holding the airsat's crown in one hand. Vimes watched the old man look upwards into a couple of glowing red eyes a few feet away. "'Can dragons read minds?' whispered Vimes. "'I'm sure mine understand every word I say,' hissed Lady Ramkin. "'Oh, no, the silly old fool is giving it the crown.' "'But isn't that a smart move?' said Vimes. "'Dragons like gold. It's like throwing a stick for a dog, isn't it?' "'Oh, dear,' said Sybil Ramkin. "'It might not, you know. Dragons have such sensitive mouths.' The great dragon blinked at the tiny circle of gold. Then, with extreme delicacy... It extended one metre-long claw and hooked the thing out of the priest's trembling fingers. "'What do you mean, sensitive?' said Vimes, watching the claw travel slowly towards the long, horse-like face. "'A really incredible sense of taste. They're so, well, chemically orientated.' "'You mean it can probably taste gold?' whispered Vimes, watching the crown being carefully licked. "'Oh, certainly, and smell it.' Vimes wondered what the chances were of the crown being made of gold. Not high, he decided. Gold foil over copper, perhaps. Enough to fool human beings. And then he wondered what someone's reaction would be if they were offered sugar which turned out once you'd put three spoonfuls in your coffee to be salt. The dragon removed the claw from its mouth in one graceful movement and caught the high priest who was just sneaking away a blow which knocked him high into the air. When he was screaming at the top of the ark, the great mouth came around and... "'Gosh!' said Lady Ramkin. There was a groan from the watchers. "'The temperature of the thing,' said Vimes. "'I mean, nothing left, just a wisp of smoke.' There was another movement in the rubble. Another figure pulled itself upright and leaned dazedly against a broken spar. It was lupine once, under a coating of soot. Vimes watched him look up into a pair of nostrils the size of drain covers. Once broke into a run. Vimes wondered what it felt like running away from something like that, expecting any minute your backbone to reach very briefly a temperature somewhere beyond the vaporization point of iron. He could guess. Once made it halfway across the square before the dragon darted forward with surprising agility for such a bulk and snatched him up. The talon swept on upward until the struggling figure was being held a few feet from the dragon's face. It appeared to examine him for some time, turning him this way and that, then, moving on its three free legs and flapping its wings occasionally to help with its balance, it trotted away across the plaza and headed towards the, what had once been, the patrician's palace. To what once had been a king's palace, too. It ignored the frightened spectators silently pressing themselves against the walls. The arched gateway was shouldered aside with depressing ease. The doors themselves, tall and iron-bound and solid, lasted a surprising ten seconds before collapsing into a heap of glowing ash. The dragon stepped through. Lady Ramkin turned in astonishment. Vimes had started to laugh. 
There was a manic edge to it, and there were tears in his eyes, but it was still laughter. He laughed and laughed until he slid gently down the edge of the fountain, his legs splaying out in front of him. <laughs> hooray! 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 He giggled, almost choking. What on earth do you mean? Lady Ramkin demanded. Put out more flags, blow the cymbals, roast the toxin. We've crowned it. We've got a king after all. What ho! Have you been drinking? She snapped. Not yet, sniggered Vimes. Not yet, but I will be. He laughed on, knowing that when he stopped, black depression was going to drop on him like a lead souffle. But he could see the future stretching out ahead of them. After all, it was definitely noble. And it didn't carry money, and it couldn't answer back. It could certainly do something for the inner cities, too, like torching them to the bedrock. We'll really do it, he thought. That's the Ankh-Morpork way. If you can't beat it or corrupt it, you pretend it was your idea in the first place. Vivat Draco. He became aware that the small child had wandered up again. It waved its flag gently at him and said, Can I shout hurrah again now? Why not, said Vimes. Everyone else will. From the palace came the muffled sounds of complicated destruction. Errol pulled the broomstick across the floor with his mouth and, whimpering with effort, hauled it upright. After a lot more whimpering and several false starts, he managed to winkle the end of it between the wall and the big jar of lamp oil. He paused for a moment, breathing like a bellows, and pushed. The jar resisted for a moment, rocked back and forth once or twice, and then fell over and smashed on the flagstones. Crude, very badly refined oil spread out in a black puddle. Errol's huge nostrils twitched. Somewhere in the back of his brain, unfamiliar synapses clicked like telegraph keys. Great bulks of information flooded down the thick nerve cord to his nose, carrying inexplicable information about triple bonds, alkanes and geometric isomerism. However, almost all of it missed the small part of Errol's brain that was used for being Errol. All he knew is that he was suddenly very, very thirsty. Something major was happening in the palace. There was the occasional crash of a floor or thump of a falling ceiling. In his rat-filled dungeon, behind a door with more locks than a major canal network, the patrician of Ark Morpork lay back and grinned in the darkness. Outside, bonfires flared in the dusk. Ark Morpork was celebrating. No one was quite sure why, but they'd worked themselves up for a celebration tonight. Barrels had been broached, oxen had been put on spits, one paper hat and a celebratory mug had been issued per child, and it seemed a shame to waste all that effort. Anyway, it had been a very interesting day, and the people of Ankh-Morpork set great store by entertainment. The way I see it, said one of the revellers halfway through a huge greasy lump of half-raw meat, a dragon as king mightn't be a bad idea. When you think it through, is what I mean. It definitely looked very gracious, said the woman to his right, as if testing the idea. Sort of, well, sleek, nice and smart, not scruffy, takes a bit of pride in itself. She glared at some of the younger revellers further down the table. The trouble with people today is they don't take pride in themselves. And there's a foreign policy, of course, said a third, helping himself to a rib, when you come to think about it. What do you mean? Diplomacy, said the rib-eater flatly. They thought about it. And then you could see them turning the idea around and thinking about it the other way, in a polite effort to see what the hell he was getting at. Dunno, said the monarchical expert slowly. 
I mean, your actual dragon has got these, basically, two sort of ways of negotiation, hasn't it? I mean, it's either roasting you alive, nor it isn't. Correct me if I'm wrong, he added. That's my point. I mean, let's say the ambassador from Clatch comes along. You know how arrogant that lot are. Suppose he says, we want this, we want that, we want the other thing. Well, he said, beaming at them, what we say is, shut your face unless you want to go home in a jar. They tried out this idea for mental fit. It had that certain something. They've got a big fleet, Clatch said the monarchist uncertainly. Could be a bit risky roasting diplomats. People who see a pile of charcoal come back on the boat, they tend to look a bit askance. Ah, then we say, oh there, Johnny Clatchian, you know like um big fella lizard belong sky, bake mud hut belong you pretty damn chop chop. We could really say that. Why not? And then we say, send plenty tribute toot sweet. I never did like them clatchians, said the woman firmly. The stuff they eat, it's disgusting, and gabbling away all the time in their heathen lingo. In the shadows, a match flared. Vimes cupped his hands around the flame, sucked on the foul tobacco, tossed the match into the gutter and slouched off down the damp puddle-punctuated alley. If there was anything that depressed him more than his own cynicism, it was that, quite often, it still wasn't as cynical as real life. We've got along with the other guys for centuries, he thought. Getting along has practically been all our foreign policy. And now I think I've just heard us declare war on an ancient civilization that we've always got along with, more or less, even if they do talk funny. And after that, the world. What's worse, we'll probably win. Similar thoughts, although with a different perspective, were going through the minds of the civic leaders of Ark Morpork, when, next morning, each received a short note bidding them to be at the palace for a working lunch, by order. It didn't say by whose order, or, they noted, whose lunch. Now they were assembled in the antechamber, and there had been changes. It had never been what you might call a select place. The patrician had always felt that if you made people comfortable they might want to stay, The furniture had been a few very elderly chairs, and around the walls portraits of earlier city rulers holding scrolls and things. The chairs were still there, the portraits were not. Or rather, the stained and cracked canvases were piled in a corner, but the gilt frames were gone. The councillors tried to avoid one another's faces and sat tapping their fingers on their knees. Finally, a couple of very worried-looking servants opened the doors to the main hall. Lupine once lurched through. Most of the councillors had been up all night anyway, trying to formulate some kind of policy vis-à-vis dragons. But once looked as though he hadn't been to sleep in years. His face was the colour of a fermented dishcloth. Never particularly well padded, he now looked like something out of a pyramid. Ah, he intoned, good. Are you all here? Then perhaps you would uh, step this way, gentlemen? Ah, said the head thief. The note mentioned lunch. "'Yes,' said once. "'With a dragon?' "'Good grief! You don't think it would eat you, do you?' said once. "'What an idea!' "'Never crossed me mind,' said the head thief, relief blowing from his ears like steam. "'The very idea!' <laughs> <laughs> said the chief merchant. "'Ho, ho, 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 
said the head assassin. The very idea. No, I expect you're all far too stringy, said once. Ah ha 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 ha. Oh ho ho ho. The temperature lowered by several degrees. So if you would kindly step this way. The great hall had changed. For one thing, it was a great deal greater. Several walls had been knocked into adjoining rooms, and the ceiling and several stories of upper rooms had been entirely removed. The floor was a mass of rubble, except in the middle of the room, which was a heap of gold. Well, gold-ish. It looked as though someone had scoured the palace for anything that shone or glittered. There were the picture frames and the gold thread out of the tapestries, and silver and the occasional gem. There were also terrines from the kitchens, candlesticks, warming pans, fragments of mirror, sparkly stuff. The councillors were not in a position to pay much attention to this, however, because of what was hanging above their heads. It looked like the biggest badly rolled cigar in the universe. If the biggest badly rolled cigar in the universe was in the habit of hanging upside down, two talons could dimly be seen gripping the dark rafters. Halfway between the glittering heap and the doorway, a small table had been laid. The councillors noted without much surprise that the familiar ancient silverware was missing. There were china plates and cutlery that looked as though it had very recently been whittled from bits of wood. Once took a seat at the head of the table and nodded to the servants. Please be seated, gentlemen," he said. "I am sorry things are a little different, but the king hopes you will bear with it until matters can be more suitably organised." The um," said the head merchant. "The king," repeated once. His voice sounded one dribble away from madness. "Oh, the king, right." Said the merchant, from where he was sitting, he had a good view of the big hanging thing. There seemed to be some movement there, some trembling in the great folds that wrapped it. Long life to him, say I," he added quickly. The first course was soup with dumplings in it. Once didn't have any. The rest of them ate in a terrified silence, broken only by the dull chiming of wood on china. There are certain matters of decree to which the king feels your assent would be welcome," said once eventually. "A pure formality, of course, and I am sorry to bother you with such petty detail." The big bundle appeared to sway in the breeze. "No trouble at all," squeaked the head thief. "The king graciously desires it to be known." Said once that it would be pleased to receive coronation gifts from the population at large. Nothing complex, of course. Simply any precious metals or gems they might have by them, and can easily spare. I should stress, by the way, that this is by no means compulsory. Such generosity as he is confident of expecting should be an entirely voluntary act. The chief assassin looked sadly at the rings on his fingers and sighed. The head merchant was already resignedly unshipping his gilt chain of office from around his neck. Why, gentlemen," said once, "this is most unexpected." Um," said the arch chancellor of Unseen University, "you will be—that uh, is, I, I am sure the king is aware that traditionally the university is exempt from all city levies and and taxes." He stifled a yawn. The wizards had spent the night directing their best spells against the dragon. It was like punching fog. 
"'My dear sir, this is no levy,' protested once. "'I hope that nothing I have said would lead you to expect anything like that. "'Oh, no, no, any tribute should be, as I said, entirely voluntary. "'I hope that is absolutely clear.' "'As Crystal,' said the head assassin, glaring at the old wizard. "'And these entirely voluntary tributes we are about to make, they go—' "'On the horde,' said once. "'Ah, while I am positive the people of the city will be very generous indeed "'once they fully understand the situation,' said the head merchant, "'I am sure the king will understand that there is very little gold in Ankh-Morpork.' "'Good point,' said once. "'However, the king intends to pursue a vigorous and dynamic foreign policy "'which should remedy matters.' Ah, the councillors chorused, rather more enthusiastically this time. For example, once went on, the king feels that our legitimate interests in Quirm, Stolat, Pseudopolis and Sort have been seriously compromised in recent centuries. This will be speedily corrected, and, gentlemen, I can assure you that treasure will positively flow into the city from those anxious to enjoy the king's protection. The head assassin glanced at the horde. A very definite idea formed in his mind as to where all that treasure would end up. You had to admire the way dragons knew how to put the bite on. It was practically human. Oh, he said. Of course there will probably be other acquisitions in the way of land, property and so forth, and the king wishes it to be fully understood that the royal privy councillors will be richly rewarded. And, um said the head assassin, who was beginning to feel that he had got a firm grip on the nature of the king's mental processes. No doubt the, um, privy councillors, said once, no doubt they will respond with even greater generosity in the matter of, for example, treasure. I am sure such considerations haven't even crossed the king's mind, said once, but the point is very well made. I thought it would be. The next course was fat pork, beans and floury potatoes. More, as they couldn't help noticing, fattening food. Once had a glass of water. Which brings us on to a further matter of some delicacy which I am sure that well-travelled...